In tonight's presentation, we're going to learn about a prophecy that gives and just keeps on giving because it keeps on being fulfilled. Our story begins in the newly formed Babylonian Empire, 605 BC, but that's not where it, in, where it ends. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the End of Time series. My name is Sharissa Tarosian, and I'm really excited that you're back. Literally last night on our opening night, we had people joining us from all over the world. So a warm welcome to all of you. You're watching, no doubt, on our website or on our Facebook page live stream or on our YouTube channel, and maybe you're even listening to radio. We want, to know, we want you to know that we're happy that you're here. We also want you to know that after Lyle presents his fascinating presentation in just a few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to ask Lyle questions which you send in. So if you're watching on our Facebook page or on our YouTube channel, please make the most of this opportunity by sending in your comments or questions for Lyle so that I can share them with him during the next segment that will follow after his presentation. But without further ado, let's listen to Lyle's presentation. False prophets will arise and deceive many. Nation will rise against nation. There will be droughts, pandemics, and earthquakes. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Today we live in a world where the International Criminal Court in The Hague will try individuals for war crimes, crimes against humanity and acts of terrorism. In the past we've seen the execution of Nazi criminals at the Nuremberg trials and in more recent times long prison sentences have been handed out to war criminals and terrorists have been imprisoned in places such as Guantanamo Bay. Perpetrators of such crimes endeavour to live in obscurity, often hiding in remote areas surrounded by fighters loyal to their cause. The ancient world was different. The Babylonian Empire was formed out of the previous Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians perpetrated war crimes, crimes against humanity and acts of terrorism, on a monumental scale. And rather than strenuously denying that these events happened or even trying to justify them in some way, the Assyrians published their atrocities on massive billboards right across the world. These billboards were no temporary structures designed to fade away as the conquered nations came into submission. No, they were carved as massive stone reliefs designed to be a testimony for all the world to see. The Assyrian policy was to literally terrorise the world into submission. The historian Simon Anglum states, The Assyrians have created the world's first great army and the world's first great empire. This was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unadulterated terror. Assyrian national history, as it has been preserved for us in inscriptions and pictures, consists almost solely of military campaigns and battles. It is as gory and blood-curdling a history as it is possible to record. For example, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal boasted, In strife and conflict I besieged the city. 
conquered the city. I cut off some of their hands, arms, and, and noses. I cut off others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. I skinned as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I skinned many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like red wool, and the rest of them the ravines and the torrents of the mountain swallowed. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built therewith a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, came to power in Babylon as a client king of the Assyrian Empire that had dominated this stage the world for centuries. But in a time when the cracks were starting to form in that great nation. The Assyrian king Ashurbanipal died in 631 BC, which resulted in serious political instability. Three rivals claimed the throne and the once mighty empire descended into a bitter civil war. The Scythian and Sumerian horse soldiers raided through the empire from their home in the far north all the way to Egypt. The Egyptians quietly changed their status from being a vassal, a vassal state of the empire to an independent ally. Nabopolassar, a Chaldean, came to power in Babylon and was able to unite that region, also breaking away from the Assyrians. In the northeast, Cyraxeres the Mede, aided by the anger caused by Ashurbanipal's brutal destruction of the Elamite Empire, led the Medes in rebellion and formed an empire of his own in what is modern-day Iran. Weakened though Assyria was, it continued to be the mightiest nation on earth. Recognising that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Cyraxeres formed an alliance with Nabopolassar by marrying his daughter Amatus to Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar. With the alliance thus sealed and his southern border no longer a threat, Cyraxeres could now turn his attention on his primary goal, the complete destruction of the Assyrian Empire. By 615 BC, Cyraxes the Mede had conquered, had captured the major Assyrian cities of Nimrod and Arapha, leaving the mighty capital of Nineveh as the greatest prize of all. Nabopolassar had been unable to offer assistance up to this point as he had his hands full defending his own revolution. But finally, the Median, Babylonian, Scythian, Sumerian alliance was able to unite and with an almost superhuman effort and unimaginable sacrifice in human lives, take Nineveh in 612 BC. Sin Sharishkan died in bitter street fighting while the crown prince Asherubalit managed to rally an elite force of the royal guard, fight his way out of the city, flee to Haran and form a new capital there. Cyraxeres so completely destroyed Nineveh that it never recovered. Just a couple of hundred years later, the Greek mercenary general historian Xenophon would wander through the ruins of Nineveh and wonder what kind of people had built such stupendous monuments. How quickly the Assyrian people had become forgotten. The prophet Nahum had said, It shall come to pass that all those that look upon you shall flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? How surely were the words of God's prophet fulfilled? Three years after the fall of Nineveh, 
Nabopolassar the Babylonian took Haran and then successfully defended it from an Assyrian counterattack led by Asherubalit. At last, in 609 BC, the Assyrian allies tardily gathered a mighty army to aid Asherubalit to regain his kingdom. This army had to fight its way through Palestine where Pharaoh Necho met and defeated a Jewish army and killed Josiah in the Battle of Megiddo. Proceeding from there to the Euphrates, the weakened Egyptian army was disastrously crushed at the Battle of Carchemish by the new Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II. With this defeat, the Assyrian Empire finally breathed its last. Nebuchadnezzar proceeded to raid all the way down to Jerusalem, taking captive its most prominent citizens and holding them hostage in his capital at Babylon. An iron curtain now fell and a cold war began between the Median Empire and the Babylonian Empire. There were just two super heavyweight superpowers left in the world where there could really only be one. And it is in this context that our story takes place. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, I've dreamed a dream and my spirit was troubled to understand the dream. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. It's hard for most of us who have grown up in recent, recent Western culture to imagine the stress that could be created by a dream, particularly one that was incredibly vivid and yet could not be remembered the next day, as was the case in this circumstance. A good example from the ancient world detailing the level of importance attached to omens that has been recorded for us in detail is found in the events of the Battle of Plataea. This was the final battle fought on the Greek main, mainland of the Persian-Greek wars. It resulted in a decisive defeat for the Persians and ended their influence in Europe. One of the greatest battlefield strengths of the Persian army was their massed archers, using volley fire to kill and wound thousands of men and demoralizing the opposing force before the two sides even met. At the previous Battle of Thermopylae, it was reported to the Greek king Leonidas that when the Persian archers unleashed their arrows, they would be so thick that they would blot out the sun. In one of the greatest comebacks ever recorded in history, Leonidas replied with something like, Good, it will be nice to fight in the shade. For the Greeks, their greatest battlefield asset were the hoplite heavy infantry who specialised in hand-to-hand combat at close quarters in a phalanx formation. The only possible defence the Greeks could mount against the Persian archers was to charge under the arrows and engage in hand-to-hand fighting. At Plataea, as the Persians closed on the retreating Spartans and Tegeans, they first sought to soften up the Greek lines with a cavalry charge after which they planted their shields and began to release volley after volley of arrows into the Greek phalanxes. The Tegeans 
having received good omens from their sacrifices, immediately charged. However, the Spartans had received poor omens and in desperation were sacrificing one goat after another, seeking a good omen. All the while, the Spartan hoplites, desperately trying to find what shelter they could behind their shields, were being killed by the hundreds and dying where they stood. Eventually, good omens were seen and the Spartans charged. When the surviving Greek infantry smashed into the Persian lines, venting up their pent-up frustration on the lightly armed Persian archers, the result was a massacre and they carried the day. The fact that men would rather stand and be shot to death with arrows rather than risk defying a bad omen illustrates the level of importance and fear that the, ancient play, that the ancients placed on such signs. It is little wonder that Nebuchadnezzar was desperate to have an explanation for what he had seen. As Nebuchadnezzar assembled his cabinet for this purpose, there would have been no initial cause for alarm. Interpreting dreams was par for the course for these men and an art that they were well practiced at. Like many of the so-called charismatic prophets of today, they were well versed in the ability to make an interpretation positive for the emperor and yet so vague that it was guaranteed to be fulfilled in some way. In fact, the Chaldeans, men from Nebuchadnezzar's own ethnic group and probably his family members were keen to put up their hand to receive the privilege of being the ones to interpret the vision. One can only imagine how quickly they pulled it back down and tried to gain a level of obscurity once they heard what Nebuchadnezzar said next. Here it comes. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known to me make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you will be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a heap of dung. Now that's a seriously unprovoked and over-the-top reply. What kind of a psycho was this guy who was now leading the world? Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant statesman, businessman and politician. In fact, he was a true genius of history. But sometimes insanity and genius walk a very fine line within the same individual. Nebuchadnezzar walked that line and at times stepped over it. We should also consider the incredible pressure this young king operated under. Not only was he the sole ruler of one of the world's largest empires, but he was involved in a cold war with his northern neighbour. The Medes, the Me with his northern neighbour, the Medes, and had to face repeated rebellions within his own provinces. The only model of government that anybody knew at that time for an empire was the Assyrian model. The Assyrians had made the worst atrocities by rulers the norm. And so, by the standards of the day, what Nebuchadnezzar decreed was not very unusual. Nebuchadnezzar lived in an era when an emperor's possibility of survival was commensurate with the level of paranoia he could maintain. When the change of government only required the change of one man, there was never a time when there was not a plot somewhere within the realm to change that man by removing him through assassination. 
The rulers that followed Nebuchadnezzar on the throne amply illustrate this point. His son Amal Marduk lasted two years. Nergal Shararizah, four years. Labashi Marduk, just nine months before Nabonidus was strong enough to take the throne, stabilize the kingdom. At the time of this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar was only in the second year of his reign and thus in a very insecure position. It's not hard to see a person losing balance and perspective under this kind of pressure. Then we must remember that children of royalty in this era were not raised by their biological parents, were seen as shorter slaves and subject to ritual abuse before leaving, leading unchecked, undisciplined teen lives. Today, we know the long-term effects that this has on a child's psyche. On top of that, there is the question of substance abuse. We've got no details. But the records of the day reveal that men who had come to power by literally, repeatedly hacking thousands of other men to pieces in close quarter combat self-medicated their PTSD with alcohol at an extreme level. So in the ensuing discussion between Nebuchadnezzar and his cabinet, the Chaldeans, having been the first ones to open their mouths and thus being thrust into the unenviable position of spokesman for the group, finally make a fatal mistake. Sharissa, why don't you share with us from Daniel chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. We'll pick up the story there uh, while we open up for questions. All right. Well, Lyle, I've been trying to keep quiet here that whole time. <laughs> that was fascinating. What an amazing history. And while everybody's um, getting ready to join into this next segment, I need to take this moment to just remind them all that we have a free offer that's connected with each presentation tonight. Um, this is what it is. It's called Bible Prophecy, The Dream of a King. As you can tell, it's right along the lines of the presentation. And if you would like to obtain your free copy, please text the keyword FUTURE to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. It's worthwhile mentioning. Yes. Save that number in your phone. Oh, that's a good idea. Particularly Mark. if you are listening on the radio. Absolutely. Because that free, you don't want to miss out on tonight's free I offer. It's amazing. Freebies. Yes. <laughs> and um, just before I read the passage that you want me to read, maybe we should just recap very quickly for everyone because yes. that was like watching a movie without, I had it all happening in my head. <laughs> it's quite graphic. But anyhow, so uh, this king... Nebuchadnezzar of yes. Babylon. Yes. He's had this incredible epic dream. Yes. He wants to know what it is. He can't remember what it is, but That's he knows right. it's important. And so he calls what you call his cabinet in. Yes. Okay. All the who's who of Babylon. That's right. Okay. And then. Um, and then he tells them that, he, that they have to tell him what he dreamed along with the interpretation or they'll be cut into small pieces and their houses turned into a pile of dung. Yeah, you really want to know what that dream is right now if you're one of them. He's a bit of a psycho, but, you know, there's probably some good reasons for him being a bit of a psycho. Absolutely. All right, so Daniel chapter yes. 2, 10 and 11. This is where the Chaldeans, they come unstuck big time. All right. This is what the Bible says. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer or Chaldean. It is a rare thing that the king requests and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So Lyle, 
Why did this upset Nebuchadnezzar so much? Yes, the Bible goes on and the Bible says, therefore this caused the king was angry and very furious. Mm -hmm. Okay, simply if you look at the last statement right there, they're, they're like, you know, this is impossibility. Why are you asking this? And eventually they make this statement and they say, the only person who can explain this is the gods whose living place is not with human beings. Now, these are the very people who up until this point had been giving the king counsel, you know, when he goes to war. They were the ones who would read the omens. When he, you know, makes whatever decision he is making, they are the ones who are giving the king counsel for. They are the ones who are supposedly in communication with the gods. All right. And so That's for Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this is just an omission right here. They've just sort of admitted, well, actually, uh, we're not in communication with the gods because, you know, if the gods do know the answer to this question and can tell Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed several nights before, then, well, it, surely it can't be a hard thing to just go ask them. That's a really good point. So if I keep reading in verses 14 to 16 of the same chapter, it says, Then Daniel answered the king, so answered the captain of the king's guard. Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Who was Daniel? We should probably answer that question. Okay, who was Daniel? How was he there? Yeah, this he is there? the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, his story, except for chapter four, which is Nebuchadnezzar wrote that chapter. But Daniel, you know, we noted that when... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar first conquered the Assyrians and the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, how he raids down south, he makes as far as Jerusalem, he conquers that city, and he takes their nobility captive and particularly the young people of that city. Daniel was a young person of noble lineage who had been taken captive. They were kind of held hostage by the Babylonians, but educated at the same time. Uh, he was educated there for three years. This is his second year. Okay. Um, so Daniel is a young student at this time and it seems that when Nebuchadnezzar decided to wipe out his entire cabinet, he decided to wipe out all of his hostages as well and wipe out anyone who was a, anyone, he was going to do a clean sweep and destroy anyone who was even in training to become a part of his cabinet because he's like, they're all corrupt, I just get rid of them all. It's kind of how, you know, <laughs> in the ancient times, some of these guys were really psychos. So, yeah, that's who Daniel was. That's how he was there. And that's why he goes in and he asks for time. He wasn't there, obviously, in the initial encounter because he's still a student. Yeah. And uh, what did he do with that time? Okay, so he goes home now and he prays. He has a very, very earnest uh, time in prayer. And when you go down to verse 19, he gathers together, by the way, three friends, and the four of them have a prayer meeting together. And in verse 19, the Bible says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And then wow. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Yes. Talk about an answer to prayer. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Imagine if you were Daniel at this particular point and you now, now have the secret that the king wants. You have, you have the key to greatness right here if you want to take it. Amen. Well, you know, at this point, Lyle, we could just put the pause button on our track. Okay, because we've probably there. got a bunch of questions pouring yeah, through, right? we need to check. Okay. And uh, right, we let's... need to remind everybody yes. that this is live. We're coming to you live from the east coast of Australia right now. And so we'd love to hear from you. If you're watching on our Facebook page, live stream, or on our YouTube channel, you can make use of the comments section and you can actually send Lyle your questions. 
And I can pitch them to him right here. And I'll just check here, Lyle. Okay. Because I did see in our uh, feed as you were presenting before, we've got people joining from Fiji and even Florida. So a special welcome to all of All you. of our international yeah. uh, guests this evening. And a special welcome, of course, to our own local friends right here in New South Wales. That's right. Uh, here's a question from Courtney Tyler. She says, I love Daniel's confidence in God. Daniel didn't know the dream, but he personally knew the one who did. Sorry, that was not a question, but what a great comment. It's a great comment. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, you imagine Daniel at this particular point would have been, you know, what, about 17, 18 years old. He's a young kid and he's standing before the greatest monarch in the world. Mm. And he's standing there with confidence saying, OK, there is a God in heaven who can answer your, your, your dream. There is a God who exists who can do this. Love it. Uh, Jill in Oz, and Jill was joining us last night as well, so it's good that you're back, Jill. We like, we like regulars. Yes, she said, I believe that Lyle is telling us about Nebuchadnezzar because the prophecies written in Revelation by John on the island of Patmos tell us about the signs according to this book. Is that why we're talking that's about exactly this? That's exactly right, yeah, and that's a really good um, um, point that Jill, Jill, was, yes, yeah, Jill, Jill is making right yes. there because uh, the books of Daniel and Revelation go hand in hand. Right. These are both what we call apocalyptic prophecies. Apocalyptic prophecies are end time prophecies. And so, yes, the book of Daniel explains the book of Re Revelation. You cannot, it's impossible to understand the book of Revelation without first gaining an understanding of the book of Daniel. All right. Because it's Daniel that unlocks Revelation. Sure. Maybe we'll go back to our study and then we will come back and look for more questions from all of you. Yes. Um, so back to Daniel chapter 2. That's right. So Daniel now, he, he's got the, the, the key. Okay. He has seen the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw. He has received the interpretation of that dream. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, he's remembered it the next day. These are all very important points. I continue to read from verses 31 to 35. You, O king, were watching. So he's before the king now. Sharing. Yes, he's standing in front of the king. This is the next day, he's standing in front of the king. Okay. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. Oh, look, we've got something here to help us. Ah, we do indeed. <laughs> look at that. A great image stood before you. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. We should have brought a big rock into the so. studio next <laughs> which, time. Which struck the image on its feet of and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's a very strange dream, Lyle, so how do we understand it? Yeah, well, even before we get there, Sharissa, think about this. Just imagine if you're Nebuchadnezzar at this particular point and you've got this young kid who's like, yeah, yeah, there's a God in heaven, you know, he's pretty confident and sometimes young teenagers can be overly confident. Um, I've probably been there myself on once or twice of uh, occasions, Maybe. but he comes in and he's, and he's confident. There's a God in heaven can answer your dream and then the next day he comes back and he's standing there. Imagine if you're Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. and you've had a really vivid dream and you can't remember the dream and you're trying the best you can to remember the dream and it just won't come to your memory. We've all been there, right? Yeah. And then this guy is standing in front of you and telling you, oh, by the way, the other night you dreamed this and then this and then this and then this. And as he's telling you, it's all coming back. 
That would catch your attention, wouldn't it? He would be on the edge of his throne. Oh, yes. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Okay, so how do we understand the dream? Yeah. Uh, okay, the great thing about Bible prophecy, because this is a prophecy and it's a prophecy given in symbols. Mm-hmm. And this is how Bible prophecy is written. Bible prophecy is written in symbols. Those symbols are all interpreted within the Bible. You don't ever have to sit back and to guess or to make up interpretations of Bible prophecy because Bible prophecy is designed by God to interpret itself. And while ever we stay within the Bible, we are safe with our interpretation. It's when we get outside of the Bible and decide to get creative, and believe me, there is some creative stuff floating around today, that we run into all kinds of trouble. Yeah, I think that's a really encouraging point, actually, because it means we can understand Bible prophecy. We just let Absolutely. the Bible... The Bible explains itself, and in this one right here, the Bible is about to do exactly that. All right. So I continue to read in verses 37 through 40, and he now gives the interpretation, I guess. You, O king, are the king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. You are this head of gold. Okay. Okay. We can stop there. Okay. (laughs) I'll pause. All right. Why not? Go ahead. (laughs) Because we don't have to guess about what the head of gold symbolizes, do we? No. The Bible tells us exactly that this head of gold right here symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian Empire. That's nice and easy. Simple as that. Okay. Now you can keep reading. Okay. You are this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Yes, one of silver. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and the fourth shall be as strong as iron. So, Lyle, you've just made this nice and easy here, but what are these nations? Okay, so very simply, when you look at what God has done here, God has given us symbols and medals, mm-hmm. codes and medals. Okay. And he very clearly states these metals are symbols of nations. He starts with Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's nation right here, and he says, okay, this is you right here, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the head of gold. That'll make Nebuchadnezzar feel, you know, pretty good about himself, and he's probably used to his counselors coming along and saying nice things about him. But what Daniel says next, and you've got to remember that Daniel is a teenage kid, is something that Nebuchadnezzar would never have heard before within his court because he says, after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, to tell Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to be conquered by an inferior nation or his empire would be conquered by an inferior empire, that's kind of like a death penalty. You know, Daniel's playing with his life right here, but he's telling the truth because it is the truth. Mm. But he says, after you shall arise uh, another kingdom inferior to you and a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. So you've got four medals, you've got four empires. They're going to come one after the other. And we can study from history and we can see that's exactly what happened. And I know that you know your history, Lyle. (laughs) All right, so maybe we should talk about it a little bit. Okay, go for it. All right. Okay, (laughs) so here's the interesting thing about history. Any historian will tell you that history repeats itself. Mm. And so if you were living in the Babylonian Empire and you looked backwards and you saw that previous to the Babylonian Empire, there had been an Egyptian, uh, sorry, an Assyrian Empire. And previous to that, there had been an Egyptian Empire. Then you would look into the future and say, okay, this empire will be conquered by another and then another and then another and then another and so on down through history. And so by saying, okay, you're going to be conquered by this one and then this one and then this one, that kind of makes sense for a historian and anybody who wants to project into the future. Except that 
When it comes to God, he's not bound by the rules of history because at this particular point, the prophecy changes. Mm. Maybe we should read about that. Right. Maybe she would read about the feet okay. um, and the toes. Do you want to do that now? Should we take some questions? Oh, questions. Yeah, let's have some questions. We've got, probably got some. Uh, I, I keep forgetting about questions. <laughs> Don't worry, folks. Oh, by the way, also want to remind you guys, um, not only do we want to hear your questions and send your questions through, but if you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube, can you do us a favour? Can you press the like button there? Yes. Um, hit subscribe for us because that enables this message to go to so many more people. It's a simple thing that you can do to just help spread the message. You can be an evangelist just by hitting one simple button right now. Good plug there, Lyle. So now we're going to go to your questions and I'm just checking the comments here as well. And we actually have a comment come through from Max. And I know that Max is watching here. And he said, he made a really good point. He said, the tips of the toenails must be full of fungus based on the times we are living in. Okay, so that's interesting. So we're getting really, to the yes, <laughs> the tips of the toenails must be full of fungus. <laughs> I've right. never heard that before. But we're getting to the tips of the toenails. And for those of you who might not be aware of the prophecy, when we get to the tips of the toenails, we're going to find that we're living in the tips of the toenails. And yes, we look at our world right now. I think you will agree with Max. There's a bit of fungus in our world right now. <laughs> I like that. Good comment. I like it too. So um, here's a question from you from Facebook. Um, I hope I say your name correctly, but I'm really glad that you're here. Van Prasag. And uh, this is a question. The prophecies in the Bible that was exact and precise are in Isaiah 53 about Jesus. Yes. The 1260 days or years in Daniel 8, Revelation 11, King Cyrus, Isaiah 45, where God mentions his name 100 years before he was born, to name a few. My question is, what are the prophecies in the Bible that will happen in our time or in the future? That's as far as I can see on the screen. Uh, that's a really big question. It is. Because the Bible's a really big book. <laughs> I'm not really sure where I could start with that. Yeah. Um, but let me maybe hit a couple of high points. Mm -hmm. So Daniel 2, 7, 8 and 9, 10 through 12. The whole of Revelation... Matthew 24, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Mm -hmm. uh, those are probably some, that, some of my go-to prophecies for end-time prophecies. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, um, first three verses, there's a great little passage there. There's great prophecies in you know, 1 and 2 Timothy. Mm -hmm. uh, those, are, those are probably some highlights, but there are just so many. All right. Very good. Um, this is from David Spain. On, it, on YouTube. Good to have you, David. He says in Daniel 2, 42 and 43, which is I think where we're Yeah, we're, we're getting there. there. We're getting there. So we've actually got Hold a few on, questions about the toes. So maybe I'll just read them and we'll go back to the study. Um, but he said, what is the best interpretation of the final 10 toes made partly of iron and partly of clay? Could this refer to the admixture of Muslims into Catholic society in Europe? That's one question on the toes. And the other one's from Harry and Facebook, and uh, Harry, good to have you. He says, what do the ten toes on the statue represent and how do they relate to prophecy in our time? Okay, this is a really good question. So I'm just going to, what, what, we, what we'll do is I'll talk a little bit about the ten toes and then we're going to go through and read what the Bible says about them. Here's what's, what's interesting. In the Bible, the number ten uh, pops up on a whole bunch of different occasions. And so you're going to find ten toes, ten horns, uh, ten virgins, ten kings, uh, etc., all in Bible prophecy. Uh, 
Whenever you have 10, you have a symbol of the whole world. That's the literal local whole world of the empire in the time of Daniel. And of course, um, all apocalyptic prophecy, once you reach the very end of time, becomes truly global. So we know we're dealing with the whole world when we're talking about the ten toes because that's, that's ten. Ten horns, ten toes, ten kings, ten virgins, whole world. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm, just gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to put that out there now and then we probably should go on and read what these verses... You know, I've, it's great to know that there are people out there who are following along in their Bibles and are reading ahead of me and they're like, okay, let's, let's get up to that one. Yeah, all right. So yes. we'll go to them? Let's go Those to them. Verses. All right, Daniel chapter 2. Verses 41 to 43, and I read, Where you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So Lyle, this sounds like it's written in a code. What does it mean when the Bible says they shall not stick together? Oh, okay. Before I get there, there's a couple of things that I want to comment on because we do have some questions here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is the best part of this whole prophecy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Bible says here, so, so let's, let's notice what we've got on our image. Let's, let's, let's head over here for a minute. The gold symbolizes an empire. Mm-hmm. The silver symbolizes an empire. This one symbolizes an empire, the brass, and then the iron as well. So we know, we know that in this prophecy, this is a prophecy about political entities. Got it. Okay. Then when you come down to the feet and toes, what we need to do is read what the Bible says about the feet and toes that are made of part of iron and part of clay, Mm -hmm. and we stay within Scripture. The Bible says here, um, as the toes of the feet were part of... Oh, sorry, where were we? Uh, You saw the, the toes... You saw the feet and toes part of potter's clay, part of iron, the kingdom. The kingdom will be divided. There'll be the strength of iron and the weakness of clay. I'm Mm -hmm. paraphrasing uh, verse 41. Okay, so when we come down here... Notice that the Bible is talking about the kingdom is being divided. Mm -hmm. We are still dealing with political entities. This is not religious in nature. Mm -hmm. It is primarily political in nature. It goes on. As the toes of the feet were part of uh, iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And so what the Bible says is this. You're going to have four empires right here. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to disintegrate. And there's going to be some that are going to be strong and some that are going to be weak. So let me share with you some fascinating history. The Babylonians, and you can go and look it up on Wikipedia if you don't believe me. It's all there. Okay, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. The Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great, the Greeks. They were conquered by the Romans. Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, these kind of guys, they came along. And, of course, Caesar established the Roman Empire that was kind of like three times bigger and lasted three times longer than any previous empire. And then you would expect that the Roman Empire would be conquered by another one. one. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. The Roman Empire collapsed. And here's what's interesting. Initially, the Roman Empire collapsed into ten separate nations. Wow. Okay, well, I want you to think about that for a moment. <laughs> Ten toes. <laughs> and amongst those nations, there were some that were strong and some that were weak. Mm. That's the history of what happened. And we can read it right here. And those, and seven of those nations, by the way, not all, not all 10 of them, just seven of them. And you'll find that in Daniel chapter seven as a, a, a sneak 
hint for uh, another Bible study. But in Daniel chapter 7, you find that only seven of the initial ten survive and become the foundations for modern-day Europe, Western Europe. The Bible says this, that though you will have some weak and some strong, they will never stick together. Now, Lyle, I've got a question. Yes. Has anyone ever tried to make them stick together? Okay. So we look at the Roman Empire right here. Mm -hmm. The date that historians give for the collapse of the Roman Empire is 476 AD. Mm -hmm. And from that date to our day, there has been an almost continual effort to reunite that empire. There's almost been no generation that has not lived in a time when someone is not trying to put it back together. But the Bible said they shall not stick one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And you can go down through history. You can read the history of Charlemagne and others who were all trying to bring this Roman Empire back. You can go back to Clovis, trying to bring that, bring that Roman Empire back together again. And they all failed. In, in more recent history, I'll give you some examples from more recent history. You can probably start with, uh, let's think about Napoleon Bonaparte. So Napoleon, um, you know, he probably came closer than just about anybody else in restoring the old Roman Empire. Uh, when he was shown this prophecy here, he was so angry to discover that the Bible said this. He took his Bible and he hurled it across the room. Mm. Then you can come down a little bit further. You come to Queen Victoria. Now, she's called the grandmother of Europe because she was re- related by you know, marriage, although they were all married together and uh, it was a family tree that didn't fork enough. <laughs> um, but they were all related to each other. The Bible says here, they will mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they will not stick together. In other words, they will intermarry, but they won't stick together. And, of course, you can move on from Queen Victoria to Kaiser Wilhelm um, because the First World War was just a big family fight. You know, when the, when, the, when the countries of Europe went to war with each other, the leaders of those countries, they're all cousins. They're all having this big family fight. We call it the First World War. And by the way, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, he was aware of this prophecy as well. And he went searching for a a statue of the prophet Daniel. And he found one in the Cathedral of Metz in France. And he cut off its head, put his own head there. It didn't solve the prophecy for him, but Mm. hey. An attempt to rewrite history. That's right. Adolf Hitler, interestingly, restored Daniel's head to the, pro- Daniel's head to the statue because wow. he said Daniel's prophecy still stands. Wow. But that Daniel's prophecy didn't fit into his plans for Western Europe. Hmm. And think about our generation. We live in the generation of the European Union. It's just another attempt at the same thing. You know, reunite Europe. You bring the whole, you know, the old Roman Empire back together again mm-hmm. in a different format. You know, not under a single sovereignty like we've seen in the past, but they're like, well, maybe we could do it this way. Well, you know, that's kind of struggled along for a couple of years until, what, a couple of years ago we had Brexit, you know, brought that whole thing completely unstuck. That's right. And so, you know, this is a prophecy that we can, be, we can see being fulfilled constantly, all the time. You've got five short words. They shall not stick together. Mm-hmm. And those five words right there, 
have brought to an end the plans of the greatest statesmen, the greatest politicians, the greatest generals, the greatest armies, the greatest plans of the greatest men our world has seen. None of them have got past those five simple words written 2,600 years ago in this prophecy right here. This is amazing, Lyle. Yes. Um, this ancient dream predicted all of this history. So accurately. Incredible. And we've still got just a little bit left in that dream, but maybe before we do, unless you want to say anything about it, we should go to more questions. All right. What have we got for more questions? All right, because um, they're just flying in thick and fast. So this one is from Philip Cadden, viewing from Facebook. Good to have you, Philip. He says, the ten horns, are they ten nations? That's what the Bible says if you go to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we don't have to guess about this. We can simply read what the Bible says. Uh, let's see here. Daniel chapter 7, and we will go down to uh, verse 24. The Bible says the ten horns, which is what he's asking about, out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And so some people say, okay, well, they're, they're, they're kings. They're not nations. However, what you're going to find in Bible prophecy is that a king is always synonymous with his nation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here you find, as an example, the Bible says, you are this head of gold and after you shall arise, not another king, another nation. That's right. Because the king and the nation are synonymous with each other. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can see it right here where in verse 17 where it talks about four beasts and beasts are all but also symbols of nations. Chapter 7, verse 17, these great beasts which are four are four kings. And so you could say, well, those are individuals. No, because if you go down to... Uh, Let me see here, verse 23, it says, Thus he said, the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. King, kingdoms, nations, synonymous with each other. The Bible says the ten horns are ten kings, kingdoms that shall arise. Great answer. Uh, We have two people sort of asking the same question, so I'm going to say them. This is from Stuart and also Paraphrase, both YouTube viewers. Yes. And we value you. So I've had Paraphrase on here before, so welcome back. (laughs) Well, Paraphrase puts it this way. How do we know the Daniel 2 prophecy wasn't written after the facts? And Stuart's saying, well, how can we know for certain that Daniel wasn't written in the time of the Babylonian Empire, that it was written there rather, and not in recent history? Okay. So, well, we have a thing called uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We do have that too. And that's going to take you back to about 120 BC. Okay. Uh, And we've got portions of the book of Daniel right there. So we know that the book of Daniel is very old. However, there are those who argue that the book of Daniel was written in the late Greek or, or, or early Roman era. And they have only one argument for that. Only one piece of evidence that they put forward to say that the book of Daniel was written at a later time, and that is the accuracy of the book. Mm-hmm. That's the only evidence that they put forward. And the reason that they put, forward, put that forward as evidence is because they don't believe in the supernatural. If you don't believe in the supernatural, how are you going to explain Daniel chapter 2 or 7 or 8 and 9 or 10 through 12? Absolutely. The only way you're going to be able to explain that and say, well, this must be uh, you know, recording history right here. It must have been written down after the events. Well, first of all, it's not going to solve your problem because the prophecy of Daniel or the prophecies of Daniel extend way past the late Greek or early Roman Empire and talk about our era in detail. They come right down to modern times. Uh, So that's not going to solve your problem. The second thing is this. There is not a shred of internal evidence in the book of Daniel to indicate a late authorship for the book of Daniel. 
Mm-hmm. Not only that, there is not a shred of evidence outside the book of Daniel, external evidence to indicate a late writing of the book of Daniel. In fact, the book of Daniel contains details that were lost to history by the late Greek early Roman era. In fact, it talks about King Belshazzar as the last king of the Babylonian Empire and the Greeks and the Romans, they had no idea who this guy was. They'd never heard of him. But Daniel records it and Daniel even records specific details about him being a co-regent with his father Nabonidus. And so all of the evidence that we have in the book of Daniel points to a uh, authorship during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and then finally Cyrus the Persian. Fascinating. Now, Lyle, we are running to the end of time, but I feel like we'll yes. just get one more curve. Oh, yes. Why not? <laughs> How much time have we got here? Um, we've got, we'll just have to do this one pretty quick and all go right. back to finish. But um, this is from Philip. And I believe this one we got to yesterday as well, but we didn't get to yesterday. When do the two witnesses appear? That's a really big question. Yeah. I don't have time for that one. Okay. Um, Sorry. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 11. It's a fascinating prophecy. For us to do justice to that, we would have to do a verse-by-verse Bible study on the latter half of chapter 11, and that would be a presentation of its own. So um, text the word chat, and we'll give you a call, and we can do that Bible study on the phone. Very good, Lyle. Yes, well, to our number, which is, uh, what have we got here? 0428 833 386. Excellent. Yes. Well, let's uh, finish off this incredible Oh, we haven't chapter. got to the best part yet, guys. <laughs> we haven't got to the best part yet. Tell us about it, Lyle. <laughs> All right, here it is. Where are we? Daniel chapter 2. Let's go over there very quickly and let's finish it off uh, because there is one part of this prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Only one small part. Every detail absolutely fulfilled up until this particular point. You know, and if if you were a betting person and you saw the same thing happening again and 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 there was one extra, only one detail left to be fulfilled, you know, any reasonable person is going to put their money on that last one being fulfilled. Okay, that is what it says. Chapter 2, verse 44, in the days of these kings... In other words, in the day when this image here, the feet of iron and clay, the divided nations, when they are trying to reunite but are unable to do so. In those days, that's our day. In those days, the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it will stand forever. This is the end of time right here. This is the kingdom of Jesus because when Jesus sets up his kingdom, time ceases to have relevance. It's over. We don't need time after that because now eternity begins. It goes on and it says, For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain and the interpretation Sure, Mm. 2,600 years ago, Daniel stood in front of Nebuchadnezzar, monarch of the world, teenage kid. He told the dream and he said to Nebuchadnezzar, the dream is certain, the interpretation is sure. Nebuchadnezzar took that on faith and made him prime minister of his empire. 
The Persians later came along and Cyrus the Persian was so impressed with the prophecies of the Bible that he commanded the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Alexander the Great, when he was conquering the world, allowed the Jews to maintain their alliance with the Persians and worshipped in their temple in honour of this prophecy right here. And they could only see a very small portion of the fulfilment of it. But great men of the past recognising it. In our day, men have hung their lives on this prophecy and had their lives saved because of this prophecy and understanding that our world would not be united, the Western Europe would not be united back together again. We have the advantage of being able to see not just a small portion of the prophecy fulfilled, like, say, Cyrus or Alexander, but nearly all of it being fulfilled with just one detail left. And that is the return of Jesus. Sharissa, I am so excited about this one part that is left. And for you as our listener today, my appeal to you is this. Jesus is coming soon. You can trust what the Bible says. I've given you just one example of so many right here that you can place your trust in, in what the Bible says about the end of time. Jesus is coming soon. Won't you make yourself ready for Jesus to return by giving your life to him this evening? If you don't know how, simply text us the word chat. We would love to have a conversation with you and share with you how you can give your life to Jesus Christ. Sharissa, why don't you finish off by reminding us uh, about the, uh, the free giveaway that you can uh, text yes. in for right now. In addition to texting in for the chat, if you'd like to talk with us, you can obtain tonight's free offer. There's one each night and tonight's is this one right here. The Bible, the Bible prophecy, the dream of a king. If you would like to obtain your free copy, please text the word future to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. And uh, before we go, Lyle, what can we look forward to? Because we're back here tomorrow. Yes. So what's happening tomorrow? What's our The rapture. Topic? The rapture. <laughs> yes, it's happening tomorrow. Okay, be no, ready. Somebody asked, when is the rapture going to happen? Well, it's happening tomorrow. <laughs> no, tomorrow night we're going to talk about how... Does time end? This is actually a critical question because it's a question that Jesus warned us there would be mass deception, not about when time would end, but all about how time would end and how Jesus would return. So we're going to cover some history once again. We're going to take a deep dive. We're going to look at some fascinating stories from the past that explain what is happening in our world right now. And we are going to expose some of the deceptions that are circulating our world. We are going to discover what the Bible says about how Jesus will return. That's tomorrow night's presentation. Can't wait, Lyle. And so just a reminder too to all of you, you can rewatch tonight's presentation. If you'd like to refresh your mind, share it with a friend. They will stay up on our website, YouTube channel and Facebook page. And before you go, make sure that you give us a like on Facebook or uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well so you can have the notification of when we go live next. And so with that, we thank you for joining us and we will look forward to having you back here with us tomorrow. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.